Hey, Ryan here. Does your company have a commercial or industrial IoT project coming down the pipe? Reach out to Vary and let our world-class specialists in hardware, software, data science, and design bring it to life. Currently, a significant amount of the world's population is cooking with dirty fuels that they can buy in some small amounts that they can afford every day. Uh, our device allows them to buy gas in the same fashion so that they can afford it. And gas is much cleaner uh, than cooking with charcoal or kerosene in the household. You're listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey, brought to you by Vary. In each episode, we have sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT Connected Devices and the Journey. Today, we're going to be talking about energy, IoT, and Africa with co-founder and CEO of Pago Energy, Nick Quintong. Nick, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So, Nick, for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about Pago Energy and the problem you guys are trying to solve. And for now, 30,000-foot view is fine. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, so Pago Energy, you know, our mission is to unlock clean uh, energy for the next billion. And so by the next billion, we meet at the billion households that are uh, currently uh, lack access to clean cooking fuel today. And so our technology is a smart meter that locks in any gas cylinder, and it turns it into a pay-as-you-go device so that customers can actually buy gas in small amounts. Uh, currently, a significant amount of the world's population is cooking with dirty fuels that they can buy in some small amounts that they can afford every day. Uh, our device allows them to buy gas in the same fashion so that they can afford it, and gas is much cleaner uh, than cooking with charcoal or kerosene in the household. I guess one thing that's kind of interesting to me is like, your background personally, you're not from Africa originally. I believe you were raised in the United States, spent some time at GE, kind of like a, I don't know, more traditional career path. Can you talk a little bit about like how, how a guy came from that background and, you know, is now founding, co-founding a tech company in Kenya? Like what, what does that path look like? Yeah, it was kind of a, uh, kind of a random path. So yeah, I was at GE, um, a great company, yeah, great, received great training there. Um, originally, I'm a, an Oregon boy. I grew up in Bend. I found my way into the corporate world. And yeah, around year four or five, I started getting this kind of creeping existential angst about what am I doing in the world? I think it's something that, that's been plaguing our generation. And so I wanted to try to do something a little bit closer to the impact side. So coming into like my fifth year at GE, I started looking for some opportunities. Um, and I found one to be a Kiva fellow. Uh, Kiva, if you're not familiar with that company, they're one. They're a nonprofit. They're one of the first companies to do crowdsourcing. Uh, they're focused kind of in the microfinance, micro lending space, um, in emerging markets like Kenya. So I was accepted into this Kiva Fellows Program, and they placed me in Nairobi to work on this kind of Kiva Zip project. So could have placed me anywhere in the world. They placed me kind of randomly, maybe not ran, randomly for them, but randomly for me in Nairobi. And uh, once I got there, I mean. Kenya is an awesome place. Kenyan people are awesome. There's tons. I'm an outdoor guy. There's tons to do outside. So I really loved um, the country. And then when I got into the startup ecosystem, people are working on some really big kind of meaty challenges. I thought there's lots of smart people here. And yeah, I really like the vibe of the scene here. But I like what people are working on. I type of people that are drawn to this market. And yeah, I love the country. So that's how I ended up here. Is the Silicon Savannah 
I understand the term it, it is like, is that related to Kenya specific or, or is that like Africa, you know, that region of Africa or like this, the, obviously this podcast is not about IOT in Africa specific, but for many people, this might be one of the few times they're hearing about IOT development in Africa. Can you give us like 20 seconds on Silicon Savannah, what that means? Yeah. I mean, Silicon Savannah is really focused on, on Nairobi and what's been created here. So there's been a lot of investment in ecosystem development. And so there's one, there's there's some great universities here in East Africa, specifically here in Nairobi, places like University of Nairobi, Strathmore, some great schools that are, are that are putting out talent. There's a lot of focus from development finance institutions in this part of the world. The UN is based here, a lot of embassies are are located here. So there's a fair amount of funding and a lot of educated people. And there were some initial kind of startups that started, you know. Um, popping up here about 10 years ago. Since then, there's been a lot of investment in accelerators. There's been pop-ups of kind of venture capital firms, and there's been you know a few kind of wins, some kind of early uh, success stories coming out of Kenya. Kenyans are also you know very innovative people. They're also quick adopters of new technology. There's over 90% of the population uses mobile money here. A lot of innovations come out of this part of the world. So it's become a real hub for startups in East Africa. And then, so when they say Silicon Savannah, they're really talking about what's been built here in Nairobi. Uh, cool. Well, let, let's get back on track. I'm, I'm really uh, interested to hear about the, the technology solution you guys have, have developed. So you're looking at the energy market in, in Kenya. You know, you're seeing this like non-democratized access to clean burning fuels or, or like for most people to get access to to uh, natural gas, like very expensive or, or may, you know, not like the unit economics don't work at the individual level. Can you talk about like the process of you landing on an IOT solution as the solution to address that problem? Yeah. So just kind of to set the stage. So, I mean, when you're looking at a place like Nairobi, most of the population is living in these really densely populated um, kind of informal type settlements. And so you know, cooking with like natural gas, you know, in the States or in Europe really isn't possible in these areas that you can't put piped gas infrastructure into a place that's kind of informally set up. You know, there's, there aren't tarmac roads, um, you know, the houses are, are not, you know, built to the traditional code that you're used to. This is like a really, a, a really challenging environment, right? Especially, so it'd be, it'd be very dangerous and expensive to put natural gas in. These areas are also growing really fast. You know, urbanization is happening in Africa and most part in a lot of emerging markets really rapidly. And so these places are actually, you know, they're not static, they're, they're growing every day. So it's, it's a really challenging environment. If you look at the livelihood of the, the average household here, they're living on less than $8 a day. So a lot of houses less than $5 a day. And a lot of their income streams are unpredictable. They're doing, you know, six, seven things in a month uh, to make ends meet. And so when you look at that person's day-to-day, it makes a lot of sense when they buy charcoal, wood, or kerosene that they can buy in small amounts. And that's what our, our founding team saw um, early on um, as their kind of the, the, the kind of pattern of behavior around cooking and uh, procuring fuel. So we saw folks teeing up in, in long lines uh, to, to buy these fuels. We started doing the back of the napkin math. And we're like, wow, they're actually spending a lot more money to cook with charcoal than I actually spend cooking with gas every month. And so first I was like, well, this is a, a real injustice. Um, but then it also, the next question was like, well, you know, what are the real barriers to cooking with gas? So we understand why we can't put pipe gas in the home, but why can someone not 
afford a gas cylinder um, if we know they're spending more than that on a daily basis. So we realized that really it's just that gas is only sold in, in large amounts. You have to buy the cylinder itself, which traditionally would be, you know, pipe gas infrastructure. You have to buy that yourself, which is the cylinder, and it can only be refilled in large amounts. So although there are some maybe analog solutions to this, we thought, hey, there's a real opportunity for us to come in you know, with an IoT device to not just change the format in which gas is sold to try to find a way to sell on a fractional basis that matches up with the day-to-day -day life of the customers we're targeting, but the IoT component could also help us be really efficient with the supply chain because the areas, again, that we're working in are really challenging to do distribution. Uh, there's no addressing system, there's not street names. And so having information flowing from the home, having better control of the assets we thought could also really improve the supply chain. So it felt like the right solution and it felt like a way to really displace a lot of these dirty fuels that we knew uh, were not the right you know, product uh, for customers. It's just, it's just all they had access to. Got it. And like, okay, so you, you're now like narrowing scope. We, I think the, we are, are the audience and I are starting to understand like the problem you know, and, and how you guys are looking at the solution makes a lot of sense to me. Let's talk about the device that you guys have built, you know, to actually begin to meter this out. Some of the like unique problems that you needed to solve. Can you talk about that sub-metering device? I don't even know if that's the right term, but that you guys have built and like some challenges along the way that, uh, you know, either technical or user interface or, you know, whatever that you guys have, have needed to solve in order to be successful. And like actually talk about the device itself. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so like any hardware company, I mean, developing hardware is a, a nightmare. It's, it's, it's a yeah. journey, right? So we, we had a, a place that we wanted. Uh, we had a very clear idea, a really elegant solution, and then we kind of had to bump along until we, we landed on, on what we've got today. Look, when you, when you look at the technology that we needed to solve this problem, a lot of the things under the hood are not novel, right? We have a gas cylinder. Gas is, you know, pressurized so that it's in liquid form, right? And so it's coming out at high pressure. So we have to regulate it to get it to low pressure. Once it's regulated, regulated to get low pressure because that's what we can cook at, right? Um, really efficiently. Once we regulate it, we have to measure it. And that's also not novel. There's lots of devices out there that can measure gas, you know, in flow. Once we've measured the gas, we need to communicate that measurement back to some kind of a system. So we have some kind of a, a communication uh, a module uh, and PCB that's kind of storing that information, right? And then, you know, in a prepay format, you need a, to be able to shut off access, right, to gas if folks haven't haven't paid for it. So you need some kind of a a, a valve, right, that's gonna that's gonna lock. So all these components are are not novel that are under the hood. And so the first question is, you know, do we need to develop an entirely new device at all, right? I mean, this is a, a gas meter essentially. Well, there weren't gas meters out there that were really that could do what we needed them to do that are uh, managing gas at high pressure. You know, most uh, gas meters are dealing with gas at much lower pressure than out of a cylinder. There weren't meters out there that would lock on top of a cylinder and would be tamper proof the way that we needed. And then also from an accuracy perspective, there weren't meters out there like in a commercial setting that were selling gas in these really like a micro amounts. I mean, we're talking about folks that need to buy, you know, 50 grams worth of gas that kind of accuracy we weren't finding in meters that were available in the market. So pretty quickly, we were backing into a totally new device. Again, knowing that, hey, a lot of the components may not be novel, but the way we're gonna put them together will be. So we started on that journey. You know, obviously there's a lot of prototyping 
um, going on. We didn't actually land on putting the device in the cylinder off the bat. We actually tested putting a device inside of a stove. But we started to find out really quickly that, hey, this we, got, we have to get to the household level and understand how people are going to interact with this device and the environment that it's going to be in. And pretty quickly realize, okay, there's a lot of safety concerns to having this built uh, in, in, built into a stove that um, it needs, if we're going to really make this thing tamper-proof, it's going to have to lock on the on the top of the cylinder so people can access more gas. And we need to be able to control um, as much as we can the safety side in our own office. So having multiple components in the household would be more dangerous. So how much can we put under the same kind of housing and QA within a controlled environment before we get it into the household? So we started getting all these learnings once we kind of got out in the market. And obviously it's been an iterative process like any other hardware company, but we've landed on a product that still kind of has those same core componentry, but we've had to make some trade-offs and we've had to spend some time really understanding what the customer needs, what gas companies need to be able to do this really efficiently and provide ultimately an experience for a customer that is going to keep them from, you know, excited to cook with gas and, and keep them from cooking with other fuels. So our audience is a lot of business leaders that are thinking about or in the process of developing a connected device, IoT solution, whatever, for their, uh, for their business. You know, we hear a lot at Very that, hey, this thing that we're developing, there's a lot of off-the-shelf components. It's, you know, this thing is, is, mo- is mostly, you know, A plus B plus C, different off-the-shelf components configured in a unique and different way, or the application of the thing is unique and different. But yet, as you've discovered, you know, A and B and C may all be standard off-the-shelf components, but the application or their integration is not at all standard. If you were taught, like, speak directly to those people out there. Like, what learnings do you wish Nick had known at the beginning of this process that he knows now about what may look relatively straightforward? Because as you said, the things are not novel. The, the technology is relatively off the shelf at the individual component level, but the application or their integration is not. What would you say to a business leader out there that, that is in a similar position about the journey that they're about to embark on? Ooh, there's a lot, a lot that I would do differently if I can go back and, and take, this <laughs> thing from the, take this thing from the top. But um, look, I, I don't have a technical background, so I, you know, I leaned a lot on the on technical guys on our team when we, we scoped this thing out in the beginning. But you know, from my perspective, there's a couple areas where you know, we might have been able to we, we actually some of these things we did well, and then some areas where we might have been able to to potentially speed things up. The first is uh, once you understand, uh, I, I'd say the the experience you're you're trying to provide your customer and what you believe are the risky assumptions, like in your business model, there are a lot of ways to to test those without having you know a fully baked device. And so for us working with gas, um, not just from a safety perspective, but also just for the, you know, the standards and regulations around selling gas um, and measuring gas, right? There's a lot of hurdles that you have to overcome just to get your first devices out into the market. And so you've got to find clever ways to get out there and test as soon as possible. We had some prototypes where we were testing, you know, what, how a customer would interact with it. And they were incredibly low fidelity cardboard yeah, using low fidelity prototypes, you can learn a lot about your customer without 
you know, going through the rigmarole of developing even like initial prototypes and trying to put those out in front of, you know, in front of customers. And I, and I think that the, some of that I think companies could do, right, is, is say, hey, I, I see that a lot of these components are off the shelf. I could put something together rather quickly and get that out to market. And it's actually, at least for gas, right, there's a lot more that you've got to do to probably get that fully approved, to get that out there and safe in front of someone's, um, get that in the hands of your customers. And you might have skipped some really risky assumptions that you could have rooted out with something that was, you know, much more kind of low fidelity, like, you know, even cardboard prototypes, like like what we used at, at Pago. So I think that's, that's that's something that we did that was probably um, a good thing. It helped us land on a device that I think was much closer to where we, where we need to be. And I think we saved a lot of time and money by doing that testing up front. On the other side of it, something that I think is um, uh, is something that you should be parallel processing is that, you know, although you may have something that again has a lot of off-the-shelf components, to hit the unit cost that you need to hit for this to be a commercially viable product, usually you can't have all off-the-shelf components under the hood. At some point. You're going to start needing to do custom componentry. You know, when you go through the value engineering process, you're going to need to start making some some trade-offs, and the thing will get a lot more custom over time just to get your costs down. And so, I think the earlier you can start that process, will will allow you to um, avoid a stop-start. And I think for us, if we did things a bit sequentially, I think that was tied to you know the timing around our funding, to be honest, and our bandwidth. But if we could have parallel process that path to scale and that path to, you know, a place where our unit economics were, um, were looking positive a lot sooner, I think it could have probably shaved a lot of time off our, our path. So although you're, you're taking your time and using lower fidelity stuff up front, I think you should be taking that information and feeding it into um, what you believe is the more scaled product you're going to have in the future. And that's your entire thought process around not just what's under the hood, but your global supply chain, how you're going to set up manufacturing, everything you need to do to hit both the unit costs and scale that you need to really have this thing take off. So I think for us, you know, we we did the front end right, where we were um, doing a lot of the really important testing um, and iterating really quickly and not doubling down on design too early. But on the other side, I think that we um, probably could have done some of the value engineering work and and thinking around, you know, what a scaled production should look like, what our global supply chain should look like. We should have done that a lot earlier, and it led to kind of a stop start. So, you know, takeaways there around parallel planning, you know, like getting your existing prototype as tight as possible while also thinking about V2, not prototype all the way through, then begin, v, you know, thinking about V2. We see that a lot. Can you talk about this idea of like accidentally shaming your customers during that manual weighing process because they were embarrassed at the lack of gas being used. It, it made them, can you expand on that? Yeah. I mean, you gotta keep yourself honest, right? So you're trying to be scrappy and, and do a, a kind of a clever test. And for us, we were trying to test, you know, people's willingness to pay, you know, you know, for to sell gas in small amounts. And the way that we did it, we thought was really clever going around and weighing people's cylinders every day, it didn't require any, you know, technology development, and we can get to the kind of the root of the challenge early. The problem is when you knock on someone's door every day and you weigh their cylinder, and then you write down the weight, and then, you know, um, you know, either take payment if they need to top up or, 
you know, if they didn't cook anything the night before, they're having to look you in the face as you weigh the cylinder and say, hey, sorry, I, you know, I cooked with something else or, you know, or I, or maybe if it's really low income, you know, household, they weren't able to have a meal the night before. And so we really felt that we were skewing the, the data by, by this really invasive approach. And so something we didn't think about at the beginning. And I think we had to look back at the data afterwards and say, hey, I wonder how much you're driving consumption just, you know, because of the, you know, the social pressure that we right. were, that we were giving them by knocking on their door every day. It's something that we hear a lot where early beta customers start to root for the the, the product company. You know, they're yeah. a part of it. They want to see the thing succeed. And so they end up, uh, as you said, skewing the outcome. And it, and, it, and it has all of these unintended downstream effects where people are saying, hey, look, like usage is higher than expected. You extrapolate that forward and say, you know, we could maybe see, you know, this much impact. And, but of course, that's, uh, you know, related to like the personal effect that, that you pointed at. Can, can you talk a little bit about like, another thing you mentioned that, that I wanted to kind of pull on a little bit is we hear a lot where the device developer, you know, either the person at the company that's in charge of it or the company itself has these metrics of success. And they say, look, we're going to get 50 units out in the wild. And that's what we're going to consider success. But maybe that person's CEO or that person's venture capitalist says, well, hang on, I, you know, 500 is actually the benchmark of success. Ha, did you guys have, like, was this something that, that resonates with you? Is this an experience that you guys have had? And, and if so, like, what lessons learned can you share about, like, setting the goalpost in the correct place and getting everyone bought in around the correct goalpost location? Yeah, this is one of the most deeply frustrating things about you know, launching a, a hardware hardware company is that for a hardware company to hit it between the uprights um, is more challenging, you know, and there's a huge difference between 50 units and even 100 units or 1,000 units, depending on where you're at in your, in your development process. And so getting to a place where you think that you've, you've reached the top of the mountain and then people telling you you're not actually there, you've got this whole other thing to go up is is really demotivating for the team and really frustrating. So we've definitely had that happen. I mean, the first thing is that if you can have investors that have a background in investing in hardware companies, that will help a lot because they can start to at least empathize with your position and understand how challenging it is to, to even just get to that next get to that next point. So for us, one of the challenges that we've had is that, you know, we've got a lot of different folks that are that are setting some of these parameters and we have to really get deep around what is the assumption that they want to test and i think that's been the real question is this a question of around the technical feasibility of what we're doing you want to you want to see uh, how this thing actually works out in the wild and you need a certain amount of you know there's a sample size in your mind that shows that and we need to really dig into it like what is it what is the actual data points that you need to understand that this technology works and that it's feasible at small scale and at some significantly larger scales. Is that the question? Is it more about user engagement and you have real concerns around product market fit and you want to see enough cycles of data and that can come in different forms? That's actually like the number of customers or it's a smaller group of customers over a longer period of time or it's more data points, right, from an individual customer. So we spent a lot of time as we became more mature, I think, as a leadership team, digging into 
what is it we're solving for? And when you got different folks in the room that are trying to kind of scope what their main, what they believe the risky assumption is, you start to put those out as separate assumptions that we're testing. So technical assumption, you know, if there's a technical concern that we need to test, let's make sure those folks are covered. If it's more of a market-based concern, let's separate those out. And we might be able to address these differently. So early on, I think we just trusted, you know, the folks we're talking to. And it's not, not that they're not, not they meant to change the goalposts. It's that sometimes there's a disconnect also between the folks that are on your board that are telling you, hey, this is what we believe the market is looking for from our experience. Then you go out to market, get slapped in the face, and they're looking for something different. So uh, again, I think you have to figure out what is it that we're testing for, and you have to triangulate it from the folks close to the business, and ultimately what that, that, that audience is going to make the final decision, which if it's the next funding round, right, it might be your this next round of investors. They might um, have a different looking field than the folks you're dealing with today. Three things that I think we're, we've talked about today that are like interesting that that you at home you know might want to consider as you're you know thinking about your project. One is this idea of parallel development. So like get a product out in the market that utilizes as much off the shelf as possible to get that initial feedback. But at some point, you need to begin to build your V2 in parallel with that, not wait until that process is completed. Two, you know, I think there's a uh, an idea of like really looking carefully at your beta adopters. You know, you you want to be mindful of like, is is there any opportunity for this data to become skewed by the, you know, the people that that we've included in our beta and and their behavior maybe not being representative of for the broader market. And and then the third one is which is the one you just talked about this idea of goalposts and getting key stakeholders really bought in about what success looks like across, you know, all these key parameters. So like units deployed, you know, probably like something around like utilization, you know, market adoption, consumer behavior, things like that, like really defining that so that everyone agrees what success looks like and the team can go drive towards that. Nick, we're, we're just about out of time, but I did want to ask you one last question you mentioned at the top of the show and user listeners from the United States would be familiar. Bend, Oregon, one of these towns that's totally blown <laughs> up. I did not know anybody was actually ever from Bend. It seems like the kind of place that no one is actually, you know, I live in Bozeman, Montana. It's the same thing. I think the last born and raised Bozeman person left 10 years ago. What, what's something, when is the last time you've been back to Bend, Oregon? And uh, for, for listeners out there that are familiar with the town, what's the thing that you think has changed, you've seen change the most about Bend, Oregon? Give us 20 seconds. Anyone, even though Bend's changed a lot, go to Bend, Oregon. It's a it's a magical place, great place to grow up. You've got the Cascade Mountain Range, the Deschutes River running through town. I think a lot of the things that uh, I love about Bend are, are, are still there. When we moved there, there was about 15,000 people. So I didn't wasn't born there, but I, I moved there when I was four or five years old. It was mostly a lumber town. And now there's about 100,000 people there. I don't know what they're doing for work, the economy there. They have a bit of a startup scene. There's a big kind of scene around growth, right? Um, but people there aren't too worried about that. They're, they're more outdoors people. So they're skiing, they're playing golf, they're out in the woods, they're having a good time. So I think the main difference is, yeah, the scale. I mean, it, it's... It's huge. It's gone up by like a factor of eight in, in size. The economy's totally changed from being a lumber town. And yeah, but I still think that the people are the same. They're, they're outdoors people. They're having a good time. 
and it's a beautiful place to live. I love it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, co-founder and CEO and uh, of Paco Energy and longtime Bend, Oregon resident, Nick Quintong. Nick, thanks for being on the show today. Ryan, thanks so much for having me. You shouldn't have to worry about IoT projects dragging on or unreliable vendors. You've got enough on your plate. The right team of engineers and project managers can change a pivotal moment for your business into your competitive edge. Very's close-knit crew of ambitious problem solvers, continuous improvers, and curious builders know how to turn your ideas into a reality, on time and up to your standards. With a focus on mitigating risk and maximizing opportunity, we'll help you build an IoT solution that you can hang your hat on. Let's bring your IoT idea to life. Learn more at verypossible.com. You've been listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and give us a rating. Have a question or an idea for a future episode? Send it to podcast at verypossible.com. See you next time.